For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Daniel 2, verse 1 through 45. And um, this quote, tell us what the future holds, actually comes from Isaiah 41, where God taunts the people of Israel who had turned away to false gods. And so one of the things that distinguishes the God of the Bible from other gods or other world religions is that the God of the Bible actually lays out Old Testament evidence, prophecy, that predicts the coming of Jesus and also future events in order to give us really evidence for belief in Christ and belief in the Bible. So... We're going to get into some pretty complicated stuff, especially toward the end of this narrative. So I just urge you to hang on, because I think at the end, when we see all of these points converge together, I think you'll be amazed. Let's start in Daniel 2, verse 1. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers and he demanded that they tell him what they had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Nebuchadnezzar was kind of an insomniac, even though he was at the height of his kingdom, incredibly powerful, these dreams would interrupt him, dreams that came from God. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, long live the king, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has to sort of reiterate. He said, no, 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 no. That's not how this is going to work. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. If you guys are truly wise if you have access to the gods, and if they can reveal truth to you, then you should be able to tell me what my dream was in the first place and give me an interpretation that makes sense. And in addition to this really difficult request, he adds this gruesome detail. He says, and if you don't tell me what it means, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. So the pressure was on. And um, in the ancient world, what they would do uh, is they would take a person and tie all of their limbs to a tree, and then they would tie the tops of the trees together, four trees, and then the executioner would cut the tree, ripping that person limb from limb, so effectively quartering them. So it's pretty gruesome. He's like, think about that. Well... Nebuchadnezzar says, if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I'll give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. He said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. He's, he's, he's exposing them for what they are, frauds. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know that I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me my dream, you're doomed. So you've conspired to tell me lies, hoping I'll change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. The astrologers replied to the king, No one on earth can tell the king his dream. 
And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they don't live here among these people. So Nebuchadnezzar's request exposes these guys for what they are, total liars, that essentially whenever he would ask them for wisdom, he'd say, they'd ask him, so what do you want us to interpret? And then they would come up with some sort of interpretation that fit with what he wanted. So essentially they were, um, you know, basically manipulating him this entire time and Nebuchadnezzar was on to him. The king was furious when he heard this and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. So he takes one, uh, this one step further. He's like, okay, not only are you guys going to die, all of the people, all of the astrologers and the wise people of Babylon, they're going to die too. And, you know, you can sort of relate to this, right? I mean, minus the homicidal thoughts. You can sort of relate to where Nebuchadnezzar is coming from. You know, it's easy to feel disillusion when you think about religion or religious people. A lot of times they make these claims, but they're just trying to manipulate you. Or these religions, they say that they offer answers to life's questions, and then when you investigate it, it leaves you with nothing. And so that's exactly how Nebuchadnezzar felt. He was frustrated and angry that these guys, who claimed to speak for the gods, actually didn't have any answers. He says, And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Ariok, Why has the king issued such a harsh decree? You can imagine they're storming into the palace where these guys are, are studying, Daniel and his companions, and they're ready to kill Daniel. And he buys a little bit of time by asking this question, you know, what, why, did he, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch told him all that happened, and then Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. So, I'm sure that this dialogue between him and Arioch was a lot longer, but Daniel was a persuasive person. He somehow convinced Arioch not only to hold off from killing him, but also that he, got, he managed to get a request with the king. Then Daniel went home and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret. So they would not be executed along with the other wise men in Babylon. So he runs to his companions, these other believers in God. And the first thing he does is he urges them to turn to God and ask God to reveal this and to have mercy on them. It's very interesting. Their first reflex in a situation like this would be to pray. And notice that they all prayed together. They prayed corporately. You know, I think it goes without saying that whenever you're faced with a seemingly impossible circumstance, you should turn to God and pray. But 
the reality is I find myself in situations all the time that seem impossible or they're really difficult, and my first reaction is to try to figure things out myself. I try to come up with a plan. And only later do I realize I never even asked God for help. And so these guys knew that they were in this impossible situation, dire situation, and they decided to turn to God in prayer. That night, we're told, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So God answers their prayer. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of the world events, and he removes kings and sets up other kings. It's amazing. We get this snapshot into Daniel's prayer to God. And it teaches us a little bit about the kind of prayers I think we should uh, ask or uh, turn to God with. Notice that the first thing he does is he praises God for who he is. I think that's super important. You know, a lot of times when you're stressed out, you're feeling anxious, or you're in a really bad circumstance, the first thing you want to do when you turn to God is just to sort of list out all of the really bad things that are happening to you, right? And then you say amen and feel worse. And yet, notice that Daniel decides that he is going to spend just a moment at the very beginning acknowledging who he's talking to. That this is the God who is sovereign. That he has wisdom and power. That he controls the destiny of human history. And so... When we come to a God like that, it gives us confidence that when we turn to him, he can actually do something about our circumstance or our problem. Verse 21 and 22 says, He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. Not only is God powerful, but he actually decides that he wants to relate to us these puny creatures that he created. That's amazing. Because I think a lot of times when we conceive of God, we think of him sort of like this deistic God who wound up the universe and just sort of walked away. He's not really involved. He's powerful, but he doesn't really care about the events of human history or your life. And yet, Daniel says that God reveals wisdom that he wants people to know him. You know, 50 years ago, Francis Schaeffer, really one one of the great Christian thinkers in the modern era, wrote this book called He is There and He is Not Silent. That's a profound title for a book. God not only exists, more than that, he actually wants to communicate with us. He wants to reveal who he is to you. And then he says in verse 23, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you've given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. So he thanks God that God reveals this this information to him. And again, I think this teaches us a little bit about prayer. That, you know, a lot of times we'll turn to God in a a moment of crisis and yet we'll fail to acknowledge when he answers our prayer. 
And so it's important for us to take notice when God actually answers our prayer and to thank him. Not because God needs this from us. Not because God is like this egomaniac and he's just like, what, I I answered their prayer and they didn't even say anything to me? I feel so hurt by that. It's for us. It's for us to grow in our gratitude and also to grow in our faith. And he says, uh, you have told me what I've asked of you. And so God answers this prayer and we'll see that it has dramatic results when he finally meets with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 24, Then Daniel went to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, Don't kill the wise men. He says, Take me to the king, and I'll tell, tell him the meaning of the dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of this dream. Notice that Arioch takes credit for himself. He's kind of a brown noser. He's like, oh, I found this guy who can interpret this dream when really he intended to kill Daniel. The king said to Daniel, is this true? Can you tell me, tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. You know, he has this opportunity to stand before the king. And he doesn't plead for his life. He doesn't whine and say, Oh, king, please don't kill me. Oh, save me and my friends. Have mercy. No, what does he do? He starts to testify about the God of the Bible. He uses this as an opportunity to demonstrate that God, the God of the Bible, is actually real. And that he speaks. Verse 29, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. This phrase here, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. The New International Version renders this a little bit different. It says, as you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. In other words... As you were lying there in preparation for sleep, before you even had this dream, you started thinking or pondering about what would happen in the future. So Daniel not only knew what the dream was and the interpretation, he could even tell Nebuchadnezzar what he was thinking right before he even had the dream. And he says, it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. Notice that he doesn't seize glory for himself. He doesn't rob God of his glory by taking credit. Instead, he lavishes God with the glory saying, you know, I'm nothing special here. It's the God of the Bible who was able to reveal this. He says, in your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was frightening. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. So apparently Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue and each part of the statue was made of a certain type of metal. 
As you watched, he said, a rock was cut from a mountain, not by human hands, and it struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was a dream. Now we will tell you that what, the king, what it means to the king. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has even put the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. So he tells him, he says, you are the first part of the statue, the head. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. So apparently each one of these segments of the statue represent kingdoms that will arise and succeed these previous kingdoms. Following that kingdom, there's going to be a fourth one, one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes that you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that the kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay will have some of the strength of the iron. But while some of the parts of it will be strong as iron, other parts are going to be weak as clay. This mixture also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay don't mix. During the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. This is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king that what will happen in the future and the dream is true, and its meaning is certain. So there you have the story. And what, you know, what ends up happening is Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed with Daniel and his ability to interpret these dreams that he actually decides to, to promote Daniel. And Daniel's like, hey, what about my buddies? Can, can they hang out with me too? And he's like, oh yeah, sure. So they all get a promotion. So there you have Daniel 2, 1 through 45. Now, let's try to interpret this, okay? This is the hard part. Uh, let's make a few observations about this statue. I think, first of all, this vision pertains to the latter days and to the future. Daniel makes that clear in verse 28 and 29. And as we'll find out in subsequent weeks, that these are nations that are involved with Israel. These are nations that conquer Israel for a period of time. Number two, each portion of the statue represents world empires that will arise in history. An empire arises, a subsequent one gains in strength, takes over that empire, and then becomes the dominant empire. Third, each successive kingdom decreases in value but increases in strength. So you have the gold... And then next you have the silver, then you have the bronze, then you have the iron. 
So it may be that each kingdom is greater in value, maybe moral value, I don't know. But it certainly increases in strength because iron is a lot stronger than gold. And notice too that this statue is actually a little bit top heavy. You know, at the bottom you've got iron and clay mixed together and at the very top you've got gold. And so from God's standpoint, he views human kingdoms this way, that they are unstable and ready to fall down at any moment. Fourth, one day God will smash these human-led kingdoms and establish his own kingdom on earth. That's where human history is headed. You know, a lot of times in our culture, people talk about the cyclical nature of history, that history repeats itself. And to some extent, we, it, history does. I mean, we end up making the same mistakes over and over again. Just look at your life and my life. I mean, that's a microcosm of history, right? Uh, so, in that sense, it is cyclical, but according to the Bible, human history is linear. That is, it has a definite beginning, and it will have a definite end, ending with God reestablishing his rule on earth. Okay, so let's look at this statue here. I didn't draw this. <laughs> but, so you have the statue... He's got kind of a James Harden beard. But, um, so the first uh, portion of the statue is the gold head. And Daniel makes it really clear that this is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Also represented by Neo-Babylon. So this would include Nabonidus and Belshazzar, which we referred to a couple weeks ago. And he says, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the gold head. So that part, that's pretty easy. But the next part, the chest and arms of silver, represent the Media Persian Empire. And again, we read about that last week. Remember in um, that account from Herodotus, the ancient historian? Cyrus the Great was actually sieging Babylon as Belshazzar was having this great feast and was able to conquer Babylon in 539 B.C., and so subsequent to that, Cyrus's son, Cambyses, conquered the southern portion of that area, Egypt, and six years later he died, succeeded by Darius the Great, who brought uh, Persia really to its zenith, but he left the western border of Greece um, unprotected. And as we see, that ends up becoming his undoing. Again, we see that uh, Daniel states in chapter 2, verse 39, that after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. So it's inferior in terms of its quality, but we know that from history, the Persian Empire was greater in size. And again, this fits with another prophecy that we see in Daniel chapter 8, where Nebuchadnezzar has this, uh, another dream about two different animals, a, ro a ram and a goat. And Daniel interprets this and says, that ram which you saw with the two horns, that represents the kings of Media and Persia. So he makes it really clear. These are, first of all, kingdoms, but that this second one here is Media Persia. The third one was Greece. Um, we know that 
in around 333 or 330, Alexander the Great became this uh, prominent leader of Greece and he stormed really through the known world on this, this whirlwind campaign. It took about 10 years and it swept from Macedonia, Greece, all the way to the Indus Valley in India. And he did that in a matter of 10 years. He was one of the greatest conquerors in human history. And he was able to, in that campaign, defeat Darius III. And so he established his prominence as the ruler of the world. Well, at the end of his campaign, he actually died. And he left his, his empire to his four generals, Lysimachus, Antipater, and... Um, who else? Oh, Ptolemy and Seleucus. And so the Greek empire was divided into four separate kingdoms until, oh, and, and uh, also note this, in verse 39, it says that this kingdom will rise to rule the world, which would really fit with Alexander the Great. And again, in Daniel 8, verse 21, remember that goat that I was referring to? Daniel interprets that as the kingdom of Greece. So again, we have this matrix that starts to form where there's correlation in these prophecies in Daniel. Following that, we have Rome. And we know this because Rome was the greatest empire that arose after Greece, dominated for about 1,400 years as the Roman Empire. And... Um, you know, you look at verse 40, it says, following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything that it strikes. If you know anything about the Roman Empire, that's one thing that characterized the empire. They were dominant when it came to military power. They had an incredible army and also, we know that this empire was, was um, really powerful in that there was a cohesiveness to the empire where people were connected through uh, language and culture. You know, if you go to Western Europe, all, most of the languages there are Romance languages, languages which are derivative of Latin. And so there was this cultural and linguistic element that bound all of the people together and really uh, was one of the main reasons why the Roman Empire lasted and dominated for as long as it did. And then there's also this other kingdom, the feet of iron and clay. And I think that there's good reason to think that these are two separate kingdoms. Um, first of all, when you look at it, it contains elements of the previous kingdom, but it's different. In other words, it's kind of same, same, but different, right? <laughs> Secondly, Daniel seems to suggest this kingdom appears hundreds or thousands of years after the previous one. Where's the Roman Empire? It's not around, right? We know that this vision ends with God coming and establishing his kingdom. Where is that? It's not here. So this event must be hundreds or 
you know, maybe thousands of years after the appearance of the Roman Empire. Also, it fits with what you might call biblical typology. Biblical typology, if you want to define it, is the study of symbols or images in the Old Testament pertaining to Christian beliefs or future events. So if you look at the Old Testament, there are a number of these types that give a picture or a symbol of something that's going to happen in the future. Um, This word uh, biblical or typology actually comes from the Greek word tupos. And this was used in forging coins. Um, Over on the left there, you have the strike. And underneath it, you would have the tupos, which is the image. And then what you would do is you'd, you'd slip in a blank disc in between that and the anvil, and then somebody would strike that, thus creating that image in the upper right-hand corner. And so you had two images. You had the tupos, and then what you might call the anti-tupos, or anti-tupos, the opposite. Anti meaning opposite. And so they're, they look the same, but they're different. And so likewise, when you look at Old Testament prophecy, you have a type that mirrors this future anti-type that God intends to reveal. So when we talk about biblical typology, you know, the prophet receives his vision as a visual picture, just like here in Daniel, right? He interprets this dream of this incredible statue. But the information God conveyed is, even though it's accurate, it's not exhaustive. In other words... It doesn't lay out every single detail about what these future events entail. Also, the prophets recount similar events without mentioning a separation of time between them. You'll you'll see this sometimes in biblical prophecy where just within one verse, the separation between the two may represent 2,000 years of time. Let's look at an example here in Luke chapter 4, verse 8 through 21, or 18 through 21. This is Jesus as he's reading the book of Isaiah in a synagogue. He's, the text tells us the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives, and when they will be released that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And at that, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. Then he said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Okay? Now here's the really weird thing about this. He was reading from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. And the section he read was this, you know, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news of the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops right there, rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant. But he stops right in the middle of a sentence, which says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Why would Jesus stop right in the middle of that? The answer, because the latter had not been fulfilled. Right in the middle of this verse, Jesus indicates that thousands of years pass. And I'm sure that from Isaiah's perspective, you know, he, was, he probably had no idea that there was, you know, several thousand years that would pass from 
favor to and. He had no clue that that was going to happen. He probably thought that these were going to be events that happened right after uh, each other. And so we really should be looking to the Bible itself to signal typology. You know, we don't want to get into the place where we are just starting to import meaning into the text. You're like, oh, this is a cool concept. Maybe that's talking about like aliens one day landing on earth, right? Um, You know, that gives us as the interpreter too much license. We have to look to the Bible itself to, to give us clues that this is where the prophecy is taking us. Okay, so some reasons for a gap of time between verse 41 and 42 in Daniel 2. First of all, there's an anatomical difference, meaning one refers to legs, the other refers to feet. Those are different, okay? That's not very controversial. Number two, there's a compositional distinction. In other words, one is made of iron, the other one is made of iron and clay. Those are not the same. Number three, in verse 44, God ends human, history, uh, human sovereignty during the kingdom associated with the feet. That clearly has not happened. So there has to be a gap between the fourth kingdom and this other kingdom. And finally, Daniel refers to those ten toes as those kings. So, This refers to another kingdom altogether. And then also it correlates with other passages like Daniel 7, verse 23 and 24. This fourth beast, which was this terrifying beast with iron teeth and ten horns, will be the fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will rise. Notice he says, out of this kingdom differentiating it from the previous one. So there's good reason to think that these ten toes represent ten kings who rule another kingdom. Okay, so we've established that there's another kingdom yet to come after Rome. So, all right, this is is where we need to, to keep tracking here, okay? I know this is getting complicated here, but... Trust me, the, the payoff's good, all right? Who are the feet, okay? <laughs> let's, let's start trying to answer this. First of all, it suggests that these are people originating from Europe or maybe tied to Western culture because they're similar to Rome, but dissimilar, right? And I think that, you know, to modern readers, it's like, I mean, I could see how maybe Europe or European countries, or Western countries could come together as a united European Union, right? But you got to think to yourself, back in the 90s, um, if you would have told people, yeah, you know, all of Western Europe would probably come together, take down their borders, and align together as a, as a federation, like the United States of America or something similar, they would have just scoffed at you like, you're totally crazy. I mean, you know, you would drive from, let's say, France to Italy, and today, you know, it's almost like going to a toll booth. You stop for a second, and then you just drive on. Back then, you would have to stop 
at the border and sometimes you'd have to wait in line for hours as they checked your car, asked you a bunch of questions. In some cases in Western Europe, they would actually make you apply for a visa just across the border. All of that has completely changed. And to people's shock, in 1992, uh, there was a European unification. The Maastricht uh, Treaty on on the European Union was signed in 1992. And in Article B, it says, the Union shall set itself the following objectives to promote economic and social progress through the creation of an area without internal frontiers. In other words, we're going to tear down the borders. Make it easy for people to trade and transport goods. Also, through the establishment of an economic and monetary union, ultimately including a single currency, like the euro, right? Finally, it says, to assert its identity on the international scene, in particular through the implementation of a common foreign and security policy that eventually could become a common defense policy. Now, you know, the EU hasn't gone to this extent yet, but it's not hard. I mean, it's not like you'd have to stretch your credulity to think that because of modern events, the, the, the European Union might decide, let's put together an army with the threat of terrorism. It's really easy to imagine that. Them saying, I'm tired of this. We need to have our own standing army. Now, I'm not saying the European Union is this next kingdom, but I'm not saying it isn't either, right? <laughs> it's just something to ponder. Okay, secondly, and this part's not real controversial, there's a coalition of ten nations that come together. And they're as strong as Rome, but with less cohesion. And that's very clear from the text. And this hegemony where you have several rulers ruling over an empire will achieve world dominance at the end of human history. So there you have information about this other kingdom. Now, it raises this final question we want to ask. How was it possible for Daniel to predict this? And I think the way you answer this really depends on this answer right here. Depends on if you've ruled out the supernatural. If you've ruled out the possibility of supernatural intervention, a God revealing himself in human history, then either Daniel made an educated guess that these kingdoms would arise, which seems highly improbable, or someone wrote Daniel much later, after these events already took place. Right? Those are the only two logical Ways you can go if God doesn't exist. But let me give you a few reasons why I think Daniel was written much earlier to substantiate the claim that this was actually a prophecy. First of all, uh, there are Qumran fragments of Daniel dating as early as 120 to 145 BC. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you ever heard of those? We have found fragments of the book of Daniel from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And something you need to know about these guys, the Qumran community, these guys were like extremists. They believed wholeheartedly in God. In fact, they believed that God was going to come soon. That's why they decided to become their own sect and, and basically isolate themselves from the rest of society. 
And so to think that they would believe or, or acknowledge the book of Daniel as part of Scripture when it was written only 50 years earlier, when the text itself seems to indicate that it was written hundreds of years earlier, is unthinkable that they would believe that. Secondly, the Jewish authors quote from Daniel and treat it as history from the 2nd century B.C. This is from a book, Maccabees, which was written during the intertestamental period. This is from around 150 B.C., 1 Maccabees 2, verse 59 through 61, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, these are Daniel's buddies, had faith, and they were saved from the flames. That story we read about last week. Daniel was a man of integrity, and he was rescued from the lion's jaws, Daniel chapter 6. Um, and so they were quoting from Daniel, which they regarded as scripture. That's, that's silly to think that this was, this was written at the same time that the book of Daniel was produced and that they would be quoting it as scripture. Third, Josephus, a Jewish historian, not a Christian, who was living around AD 70, says that portions of Daniel were actually shown to Alexander the Great. This is some hot stuff. Look, look, check out this quote right here. This is Josephus' Antiquities, book 11, chapter 8, verse 5. He, Alexander, came into the city, and when he went up into the temple, he offered sacrifices to God. When the book of Daniel was shown to him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, right? We're talking about Daniel chapter 2, 7, and 8. He, Alexander the Great, supposed that himself was the person intended. In other words, Dan, or Alexander the Great interpreted that prophecy in Daniel as speaking about him and his conquest, which was an event that happened in around 333 B.C. Finally, the book of Ezekiel which uh, claims to have been written around 575 B.C. and the liberal dating, not politically liberal, but like the skeptical dating of this would be around 330 to 200 B.C., mentions Daniel in the text. So if God does exist, which is the other possibility, then really it's within the realm of possibility. In fact, you could imagine a God who knows the kind of questions we would have the skepticism we would be bringing to the table would probably include something like this to demonstrate that he indeed is real. Look at Isaiah 41, verse 21 through 23. This is where God mocks the people of Israel as they turn away to these false gods. He says, present the case for your idols. Let them show what they can do, says the king of Israel. Let them try to tell us what happened long ago so that we may consider the evidence. Or let them tell us what the future holds so we can know what's going to happen. Yes, tell us what will occur in the days ahead. Then we will know, uh, then we will know you are gods. In fact, do anything good or bad. Do something that's going to either amaze us or frighten us. Something. Speak. And there was silence. But the God of the Bible presents evidence. He speaks and he gives evidence. And he does that 
to show us he's real. Let's draw a few conclusions. I think, first of all, this passage predicts the course of future history in the Western world. It's an amazing prophecy. If the supernatural exists, if God speaks, if God wants you to know him, then all of this is possible. And it's an incredible prediction. If you don't think so, my my question to you is, what's your explanation? Secondly, when you correlate this with other passages, the interpretation becomes unmistakable. You know, it's not like an isolated prophecy that you look at and then you try to put all this meaning into it. It's that when you look at Daniel and really the entire Bible, it forms this matrix where all of these prophecies correlate with one another, substantiating our interpretation. Third, it terminates with God establishing his kingdom of peace and justice, establishing it, and ends human corruption and our horrifying rule of the earth. You know, that should give us some peace and comfort. You know, we live in a world today filled with instability, political instability, the threat of terrorism, the threat of mass shootings, the resurgence of racism in our, in our country. You know, many of us have lived through, you know, 2008, 2009, when we watched our families lose their home or our, our family members lose their job. So we live in this world where there's so much instability and worry and anxiety. And you know what God says? One day I'm going to establish my kingdom of peace. You're not going to have to worry. And finally, it could happen sooner than you think. Now, I would encourage you, if you're here and you're a visitor, stick with us. Come the next three weeks and check out Daniel chapter 7, chapter 8, and especially chapter 9. And I promise you that you're going to see something incredible. Yeah, we're grateful that you include things like this in the Bible, Lord. And um, I know these passages have really built up my faith. And um, I pray that, you know, uh, for those of us maybe who just forged a relationship with you recently, that we would walk away from, you know, teachings like this feeling built up in our faith, that, that we can actually look to evidence for our belief, that we're not just, you know, jumping off a cliff, hoping that, you know, you're, that, uh, you know, we're, we're actually believing in something real. And so... Um, Thank you that uh, you offer this evidence, and I pray for those of us who may not know you, that uh, at the very least, this would compel us to maybe call out to you and ask if you're real, and to continue checking out the evidence that you lay out here in Daniel. We thank you for anybody who did that. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.